and welcome to Eat Sleep Code, the official Teller podcast. I'm your host, Ed Sharmano, and with me today is Chris DeMars. How are you doing, Chris? I'm doing good, brother. How are you? I'm doing great, man. Uh, so we uh, are coming back with Eat Sleep Code after a little bit of a hiatus. The show's been on hold for a little while, been kind of laser focused on some other activities at work. and Maybe the- blazer focused? Oh! <laughs> oh, man. That's... That's it's it's funny and true, so uh, you hit the nail on the head there. Uh, so I've been I've been laying into the uh, Blazor uh, framework pretty heavily over the last two years. So it's gone from an experiment to uh, full release this May. Sometime in this this May timeframe will be the official full release. Uh, so I'm kind of seeing. Uh, the surface of the water now, so I can get my head up there and start doing some podcasts again. Nice. So uh, it's nice to have uh, you back as my first guest, Chris. So why don't I'm you tell stoked. the listeners a little bit about yourself and what you do, man? Yeah, sure. No problem. So yeah, I'm Chris DeMars. I'm a front-end developer at Tuft & Needle, uh, which is an amazing mattress company. If you don't have a Tuft & Needle mattress, you're doing it wrong. I'm also an international speaker, a Google developer expert, and a Microsoft MVP. Excellent. And uh, you focus quite heavily on accessibility, right? Yes, sir. Most, mostly accessibility. Um, like CSS is my backyard. Accessibility, uh, front-end performance, but mostly accessibility. So uh, I'm a big CSS fan myself. and uh, As you should be. SAS. So yes. maybe, maybe we'll sidebar on that for a little bit, too. No doubt. Uh, but we, we wanted to talk mainly about accessibility today. Um, I've had a couple of guests on the show in the past, some fantastic ones, um, like Elle Waters, to talk about accessibility in general. Um, so today, I think we want to kind of talk about like maybe some best practices and, and uh, some projects that you've worked on, you know, trials and tribulations. What have you seen um, in the industry? Like, what are some really bad things maybe you've seen and, and how you fix them? Ooh, there's so many things out there. Like I was, I was listening to a friend of mine's, uh, conference. It was a conference talk that was online and they were stating like one in 10 websites are not accessible. It's like, what? One in 10? Like, that's crazy. And like a lot of the things you see, a lot of the big, big issues you see, they really boil down to like low hanging fruit, like developer 101 type things, right? Color contrast is a huge one. Like there's so many applications and websites out there that like the color contrast just sucks completely. Or you'll have an application. It's just full of divs, right? Semantic markup by default is accessible. So like if you can use semantic markup, use it, you know, header, nav, main, side, section, footer, use those, use those, elements see another big one is not having aria labels on non-contextual elements what aria stands for it stands for accessible rich internet applications and it helps out the screen readers like with context so you'll see this a lot in social media icons which and everybody's on social media now right so you'll see this like in footers where there's no aria label on it so like when a screen reader announces to the user, when they interact with that icon, it'll just say, you know, it could just say like a link or 
uh, the name of the icon, but it doesn't mean anything. So if you had an ARIA label on it, it could announce to the user like link, Twitter, link, Instagram, and you know that you can interact with that. Same thing with modals. Like nine times out of 10, you'll see an X the top of a modal. Well, if you don't put an ARIA label on that that says close or exit, your user is not going to know what to do when they interact with that, when they focus to it. So you see that a lot too out in the wild. Yeah, so that you've already got quite a bit to unpack there. And I like to kind of relate some of these things to like real world experiences. Like uh, the web is still, even though you know we live in this very technical world now, uh, I think it still helps to ground people in some non-abstract thing that we see every day. Uh, and I'll give you a good example. I was at a conference not that long ago, and at the hotel. I'm coming in from the street and like the handicap accessible button to open the door for like a wheelchair user mm-hmm. is around the, this giant planter on the other side of the door. And it's like, just put yourself in that person's position for five seconds. Yeah. So you have to wheel around the giant planter, hit the button that's behind the plant and then wheel yourself back around the planter again, and then try to make it in the door before it shuts. And that's, uh, that's, that's kind of what we do with our websites, right? Yeah. No, definitely. And, he, like, and that's, that's a funny that you bring that up, because that experience for that person or that user, it, they're almost on a timer, right? And timers aren't good. And we've all been in that situation where you're, you're on Ticketmaster or TicketWeb or whatever the case may be, and you're going to purchase tickets for a concert or a game or something, some event in your area, but it, you got a countdown to reserve your tickets. So like you have to hurry up and type in all your ma- information and get your credit card if it's not saved and then come back to your desk, type that stuff in or you get sidetracked and who knows, you might end up missing the time on it, right? Now you just lost the seats potentially. But on top of all of that, you're causing the user distress and anxiety. Because now they're triggered to hurry up and do something. And anytime you're, you're rushed to do something, it's going to cause anxiety, right? Because all you can think of is, I got to do this, I got to do this, I got to do this. I, I'm freaking out, right? Causing someone anxiety, you know, that might not be considered, quote unquote, a disability. But in my eyes, it is. Like, I, have, I suffer from anxiety and depression and all that stuff, too. That is, that is a diff- disability. That's an impairment I deal with every day. You know, it's hard for me to do certain things when my anxiety is really, really high that day. You know what I mean? So if I'm trying to do something that has a timer on it, now it's like, okay, I can't take my time and do this. I got to hurry up and rush. And if I don't do this, you know, my tickets might be gone. Yeah, you know, I think it boils down to uh, just kind of thinking through what the user's actually experiencing, hence the UX part of it. But, uh, you know, trying to, trying to have some empathy and, you know, think about how they're actually interacting with the thing you're building. Um, you know, I notice odd things like the, the planter analogy because my, my dad was in a wheelchair for a good part of his life. So we, we actually had to deal with that stuff first person. Uh, so it gives you a little bit of perspective on other things when you start looking at them from that perspective as well. Uh, so we, you know, you talked about like colors, for example. What are, what are some of the color choices that we make, and and how do we like fix that problem? 
So like I, I kind of, when I talk about color contrast, especially in like my conference talks where I'm, I'm specifically my low vision talk and I talk about color contrast and color vision deficiencies or color blindness, I talk about like the differences between the different levels of compliance and how we should be hitting AA. Now AA has like different ratio standard for, for color contrast opposed to AAA and then level, you know, single A, which we should all be hitting out of the box. Um, but I talk about how, you know, and this kind of relates back to seeing the bigger picture. Like we at times or our marketing team or our digital like design team want to build things that we think are cool, right? We want to mm-hmm. ship products. We want to ship designs that we think are cool and colors that we think are cool. And oh, this, this palette is so cool and it's on brand. But in reality, like we aren't the user. You know what I mean? Like we are the user, but we aren't the user. The user is the people out there in the world. You know what I mean? Like the world is bigger than you. I remember back in the day when I started building on the web, you know, I love green. Green's my favorite color. So I would constantly build applicate websites that were like dark purple and black for like the black background and dark purple or a black background in lime green or yellow. Like, okay, that's cool and all. And that's got super high contrast, but that doesn't mean that's going to work for everybody. So being able to think about the color schemes that you're using and test those colors. And there's, there's color contrast tools out there where you can test foreground and background colors to see if you pass. Doing that is a huge step. And even I wrote an article about this, about the color contrast checker and Chrome's dev tools, which is more, it's more advanced now, but you can click on like a, um, a color in the CSS and the dev tools for an H1 or H2 or paragraph text. And then it'll pull up a swatch palette and it'll have lines that go across it. And those lines represent level AA and level AAA color contrast compliance. And you can drag the, the little cursor around and see in real time where you would fall, whether you pass or you could fail AA or AAA and trying to find colors that could work with the background that you have coded. It's a really, really cool tool that, that, that Chrome put out with their dev tools. I think back in the version 50s is when they released it. So it's been out there for a while. Yeah, you used to have to download these things as separate, like uh, either command line tools that you could run against your, your site or um, what are they called? Uh, there's some, some other uh, ad, uh, browser add-ins that we used to Extensions. have. Extensions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, like uh, the, the Chrome. Uh, add-ons and stuff that would do this, but um, they they actually bake this in now, which is really awesome. There there's a pile of tools that are inside of your Chrome Dev Tools that most people, are, including myself, are probably unaware that they exist. Yeah, you know, and and speaking of Chrome's Dev Tools, like Chrome is doing a great job with their Dev Tools, um, but if if you're really looking to get the most out of a vendor's Dev Tools when it comes to accessibility. Definitely go with Firefox. Firefox has an amazing set of dev tools out there. I think, in my opinion, they're leading the industry in dev tools, especially when it comes to UI development and the tools that they have for building with CSS Grid. It's amazing. But, I mean, your mileage may vary. Do whatever you want to do. But I would suggest Firefox, use Chrome, do whatever. And so, you know, visual impairments go beyond... You know, not being able to see the screen and having uh, screen readers, 
helping you out. And uh, this is more focused on um, the contrast, like you're saying, for people that are uh, colorblind, which colorblindness is pretty common, actually. It's not as, not it as is. rare as you might think. Um, but you, you also talked about uh, Aria and, uh, or Aria, however you want to pronounce that. But uh, that, that's more focused on screen readers um, and things like that. So let's talk about that a little bit. Um, you mentioned you know, adding, adding that to certain elements to help navigate the screen readers. Um, and I, I think this might have come from your earlier comment as well. You're kind of talking about something I, I refer to as div spamming. Um, so we're not using semantic HTML markup. We're just kind of spamming divs everywhere and turning yep. those into things like Div buttons. Yep. Yeah. So so let's kind of hit that up a little bit. Yeah. So there's there's one rule when it comes to Aria. Number one rule when using Aria: don't use Aria. And the reason behind that is you should never be using Aria when you have semantic elements at your disposal. Back in the day before we had HTML5 and like really before accessibility was a thing. I mean, it, it, I remember long, long, long time ago, 1996, when I read my first HTML book, there wasn't really a whole section on accessibility. There was bits and pieces talking about alt attributes with your images and then making sure that tables are um, accessible. But that was it. So the whole, the whole point of ARIA is only use it if you have to use it. So like if you have contextual elements or widgets that don't fit the HTML5 attributes and tags and elements, then use ARIA. For instance, like I was saying, if you have a social media component, right? There, there is no such thing as a social media element in HTML5. So essentially you'd have a div with a wrapper class or something on it. And then links that would have those icons in there. But those don't mean anything, especially if they're empty. Because if you have a social media icon, you're not going to use a, like a link inside it. It's not going to say Twitter, right? In between your, your anchor tag. It'll be empty. Well, it's not going to be able to be read by a screen reader. So, But if you do have an ARIA label on there, the ARIA label will be read by the screen reader along with the link. So that way your user knows, hey, I can interact with this. This is going to take me to Twitter because it's a link. Now, if I have an element that is a proper semantic element and I apply an ARIA label to it or attribute to it, is that going to cause more trouble than it's worth? Is it going to, is the screen reader going to kind of duplicate the content that it's reading? It will, yeah, because the screen reader is going to read the semantic element first and then it's going to go on to read the other one. It's, it's, it's either going to read the element first or it's going to read what the ARIA label is or it's vice versa but it will double it up. So that's like, you'll see this too when you have um, ARIA roles on certain things. Now you, you, you do want to put ARIA roles on certain things, but I've seen where you have like a header element with a role of header. You don't need that. You don't need the role of header because you're already using the header element. So that'll be announced to the screen reader user as header. And now your user knows, okay, hey, this is where I'm at. I'm pretty much at the top of the navigator, or the top of the experience. I'm in the header section. Where can I go from here? Yeah. And if you overdo it, what you end up with is a screen reader literally saying to the user, uh, header, uh, some other element, header, header. Exactly. <laughs> it's like repeating itself. And it's like, okay, I get it. This is the header. Uh, so you got to be careful with those. Uh, right. Try to use uh, 
and please correct me if I'm wrong. I'm, I'm no expert on the subject, but you want to use the semantic element first if there's no other choice. Yep. And then if, if you have that, you know, you don't need to add additional information. Correct. Um, now, is there a good way to test for these things or it, should you have someone on your team that is experienced in using uh, screen readers? What's, what's a good way to kind of tackle this? So yeah, there's, there's a handful of tools out there. We use them at Tough to Needle. I use them in my own work. I've used them at previous companies. So DQ um, is an accessibility company. They're based out of Ann Arbor, Michigan. And they created a tool called Xcore. And what Xcore does is it tests the accessibility of your experience. Now you can use it in testing, you know, end-to-end or unit testing. You can use it in Cypress and Jest and um, all of those really cool tools. You can also install it as a browser extension for Chrome and Firefox. And that's what I usually recommend people do is just, just do that. Let the architecture team or whoever's like handling like the testy stuff, even if it is you, have a conversation about that later. But for local stuff, definitely use X. Um, you can install, like I said, you could install it in Chrome and Firefox. And that will run an audit on a page per page basis of your experience. And it'll give you the violations and things that need review. Um, you can look and drill down to the node and the dev tools on where that issue is. You can highlight it on the screen in the UI if you want to visually see where the problem lies. And then it, there's just tons and tons of information that it gives you. So that's, that's one tool that I recommend. I also recommend pairing that with Lighthouse. Now, if you've never used Lighthouse, it's in Chrome's dev tools. You can run audits in Lighthouse. So you can do an accessibility audit, SEO audit, performance, um, uh, PWA audit. So that's really cool. Lighthouse will give you a score out of 100 for all of those different things. And you can check which one you want. You can choose mobile or desktop. You can throttle the network. I usually have mine set at accessibility, desktop, no throttling, clear storage. That way it's just constant. I don't have to worry about anything being held up or hanging up or anything like that. And the network doesn't matter when it comes to accessibility. Like it's going to just, the code is the code. It's not going to speed up like the, the, the quickness of the website at least not in my, any of my stuff that I've ever done. It'll give you a score of 100. The closer you get to green and to 100% is where you want to be. Lighthouse also runs on X-Core, so that's under the hood. So it's, it's kind of nice to pair X-Core and Lighthouse together. Uh, if you are coming into accessibility from a non-tech perspective and you're not sure how to open up the dev tools and run Lighthouse, you can go to web.dev, which is Lighthouse in the browser. You just type in your URL and it'll give you the Lighthouse results directly in the browser. So oh, that's nice. really cool. Yeah, that's a really cool one. We use a tool called Pope.tech at Tuft & Needle, uh, which runs like site-wide um, crawling and audits and gives out reports and, and gives you the errors. It's based off the Wave engine that WebAIM uses. The Wave engine is really cool too. You can go to webaim.org and run an audit there using the Wave, uh, the Wave engine. You can install the Wave engine as an extension in Firefox and Chrome. So yeah, there's, there's a handful of tools out there that you can use. And then there's other tools to simulate color vision deficiency. Uh, there's other tools out there to simulate certain types of low vision. And then you have screen readers on your machines too. You know, Mac voiceover comes on most, all of iOS and Mac OS devices. There's NVDA for Windows. Um, so yeah, there's, there's a bunch of tools out there. So uh, another one that comes to mind uh, while you're talking about, um, you know, screen readers and uh, stuff like that, 
Um, and we talked about the ARIA roles. Uh, another thing that comes to my mind is some of the UX patterns that we have that are, are kind of tough to fit um, in those boxes. And I'll give a good example of that. Like, how should we be developing things like a modal pop-up? Is that something that you've had to deal with? Yeah, you know, designing those, designing anything really, it, it, it really all boils down to accessibility. And I do say this in my talk as well, like accessibility starts with design. It starts with your design team. Your design team has to understand the flow of the, the document object, right? The document object model. They kind of have to understand how that works. They have to understand persona and user flow. They have to understand color contrast. They have to understand focus and how that works within an experience and, and how certain things are going to trigger other things. Now, designing a modal, modals are oh, like modal. I won't, I don't say they're easy because I don't like using the term easy, but modals, they, they can be rather painless to design, right? You just on a click, you, you trigger a modal, making sure that that modal has all of the proper accessibility roles associated to it like focus and making sure the buttons are actually buttons, uh, making sure that you have ARIA labels on non-contextual elements and that you also hook up the keyboard, you know, key pressing down on certain keys to close a modal and shift focus back. It, it can be painless. I mean, especially if you do the research or you, or you look at other companies that, that do it really well. Bootstrap does it really well. Bootstrap, their modal is really accessible. And it works the same way. You know, you trigger a modal. It has all the necessary things that you need to interact with that modal and shift focus back to the main window when you're done. And this is one of the things that um, we spend a lot of time with at, uh, at Progress Telerik. Um, you know, we're, we're working on a new UI platform for Blazor, like we mentioned way early in the show. Uh, so we're, we're getting um, into our accessibility and compliance mode right now where we're going back through some of the UI components that we've made um, and we're adding uh, some of the stuff that you're mentioning. And I, I think keyboard navigation is one that people miss very frequently. Uh, and that's, that's one of the things that, that we uh, kind of pride ourselves on uh, at Telerik is, you know, our, our components have that built in so you don't have to know all the things that you're talking about. Uh, it's it's right there out of the box, kind of kind of like Bootstrap, but we do it on a much larger scale. Um, but it takes a lot of kind of pre-planning and forethought to to come up with the right elements for these things. Because um, if you're you're developing an app uh, and you're um, not you know you're, you don't have any vision issues, a modal makes sense. It comes up on the screen and you can see that it's popped up and it has buttons that you can click on to dismiss it. Maybe you can't click on things in the background, uh, but if you're not able to see that pop up, you have to make sure that it makes sense when the screen reader shows it. Exactly. Now that, that might not be something that's immediately aware if you're, you're kind of hand rolling these things yourself. Um, it, and there's, there's kind of this weird um, I don't want to. I want to come off uh, insulting, so I want to try to phrase this the right way. There is a 
a group of folks that like to bash frameworks. And they, they like to think that, uh, you know, they can build every single piece of every system themselves. And this doesn't have to even be like front end development. Like the back end gets the same type of treatment, like people that are too good for frameworks. Um, never kind of understood that, that whole mentality, but, uh, being able to use something like Bootstrap gives you such a launching pad and sets you in the right direction to, to get some best practices in place, right? Yeah, I mean, I'm not a fan of Bootstrap anymore, but because I, I'm, I'm part of that crew where, you know, I'm all about roll your own. Not so much the frameworky JavaScripty type of type of frameworky stuff. Um, but bootstrap was never intended to be uh, made used for production. Right. But what they do well is accessibility. And I'm sure foundation does the same thing really well too. You know, Zerb, Zerb created foundation. Um, they do it well. If you can model your experience, if you're rolling your own and you model your experience off of theirs, I think you'll be in you'll be in good shape because there's been countless of times I've referred to Bootstrap's documentation on how they did certain things if I couldn't figure it out myself. And um, yeah, I mean, yeah, they're they're exactly what they're labeled as. They're a framework. There's there's something to build upon and and kind of use as a reference uh, to make something bigger. And I used uh, I used Zerb Foundation quite extensively in the past. Um, because they're a little more bare bones, uh, it's, it's nice to have that prototyping system in place so you can communicate your idea very quickly, right? uh, and then use that foundation to build the actual thing on top of it. Well, what sets them apart is like, if you really think about it, Zurb, well, Zurb, but foundation and, and bootstrap, they're responsive UI frameworks. Now there's, there's two words in there that that make the whole difference in the world being responsive in ui when you're using that their whole the whole point of that is you're using the elements they have most of it is css right mm-hmm. most of it is components and shipping that stuff down you know back in the day it might have not have been accessible but with newer versions of each they've baked in more and more accessibility because it's a responsive ui framework not a javascript framework. And right. You see this a lot today with JavaScript frameworks. JavaScript frameworks are making it a lot harder for accessibility because they don't bake it in. So we're having to go back, put all these different things in, et cetera, et cetera. Foundation and Bootstrap are, are design systems. If you really want to drill down to it, they're design systems. And most of the design systems that are coming out today, they're built with components and CSS and accessibility in mind. So there's no having to think. Right. That mm-hmm. is, that's pretty much what it is. Yeah. And you have to keep in mind too, uh, there's, there's quite a few uh, developers out there that don't have, um, they don't have teams in place to take care of these things. So these, these frameworks are all they have to rely right. on. Uh, so it's, it's very helpful that, that they come out of the box the way they do. Definitely. Um, and, and set some best practices in place for folks. Yeah. Um, so maybe it's a good time to sidebar then. We we were talking about um, SaaS a little bit at the beginning of the show. 
Uh, I'm a huge fan. I, I love. I like, love SAS. I, I'm probably one of the odd ducks. Like you, oh dude, I I don't want to get into like the whole like war that happens on Twitter on a regular basis of uh, HTML is not a programming language. CSS isn't a program. You know, you know if the, you don't write the, JavaScript, the, you're not a developer. Yeah, I've like, heard it all. I I won't go into that whole thing. I don't support that that notion in any way. I'm a I'm a C sharp dev uh, mostly, um, but I love. I love some SaaS, man. I am a SaaS developer. Like I, I will jump into that any day and uh, just have a field day. Uh, it's one of the most productive languages I, I like to get into. Um, so talking about like Bootstrap and Foundation, like they are both built heavily on SaaS. Um, what I like about that is I can trim those things down just by going into a file and like weeding out like all the things I don't need. Like I can start with all the all the elements and then as I replace maybe maybe I start with a uh, uh, bootstrap grid and then I upgrade to like something something more robust like one of the teller grids with uh, all the accessibility features enabled. I can just jump back into the bootstrap SAS file and like comment out the part that has all the styling for tables and whatnot. Yeah, that's another cool, like a really, really cool thing I like about both foundation and bootstrap is like, and not even like digging into the SAS file. It's when you're setting up your project, like, and you're trying to read when you're going through the documentation and you're setting up like your own implementation, they have built in UIs on their websites that lets you include what you want in your bundle. If you, if you're not using a CDN and just download a zip, so like you don't have to use any of that. You can use the grid and that's it. If you don't want to write your own or you can, uh, if you don't want to write the CSS ver- or the SAS variables yourself, there's a, there's a section in that UI where you can build out the variables right there and name them with the colors. And that will just bundle all that stuff together. So right when you download the zip, pull it into your project, it's ready out of the box. I think that's really cool. Yeah, one of the, one of the things that I, I normally do is um, I'll grab just the gr- just the uh, layout system. Yeah, I've done that before. I'll just use layout. I'll just use the grid. That stuff's getting a lot easier now, though, with uh, like Flexbox and uh, CSS yeah. Grid. But uh, still, the the way the uh, those things work with all the breakpoints already built in and everything yeah. is pretty slick. It, it takes all of the, the the hard work out of it, which is cool. Which is, which is really cool. And that's why you just see a lot of enterprise companies that, that use it, right? The last two enterprise companies I worked for, we used Bootstrap. Because yeah, it's, you have so many hands in the pot, right? One of the things I talk about um, with open source projects a lot, um, and you know, Bootstrap came out of Twitter. Um, and then we have other frameworks that came out of different uh, places like... Um, like React and in Facebook and uh, Google and Angular, and I think I think one of the untold stories there is they have created a system that now has a talent pool built around it, and you can hire developers that know that system. Whereas if you're hand rolling something, you can't really go out and hire somebody that already knows the system that you've built where they come on the job. Right. 
Uh, I mean, you can hire very experienced uh, JavaScript, HTML, you know, all the above uh, developers that are just really good at what they do. And maybe that's good enough. But you can also, with these, these frameworks, you can hire folks that know the framework inside and out, and they've never worked, you know, inside of your walls. Right. Uh, and that, that even goes for, like, uh, you know, the, the big companies that, that invented these things. So uh, it, it's pretty interesting. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. Uh, so one, one more little, little issue. Like, uh, if listeners don't know, like, you, you and I, like, we've known each other a while. So, so mm-hmm. I know some of, some of your hot button issues as well. Oh. Um, so, so let's poke the bear at this one a little bit. I think both of us are in agreement on this one too, being fans of SAS. Like, what's your take on this shoving SAS or CSS inside oh. of JavaScript? <laughs> <laughs> I think it's nonsense. I don't think it belongs in there. And JSX generating HTML is a joke. There, I said it. Now, I, now don't get me wrong. React is cool. React is great. I'm, I'm working with it right now. I work with it at work. I have projects I'm building with it. I love all my JavaScript friends. They're all amazing people. But I'm so old school that I just think all of that shit needs to be separated. The markup, the JavaScript, and the CSS. I don't like, you shouldn't be coupling CSS. And I've seen even in some React projects where like there's inline CSS. Like inline CSS is only good for above the fold content and you're trying to work on performance stuff with critical CSS. It just, I'm not a fan of it and I haven't been a fan of it. That's how I feel. Yeah. I think it adds like, uh, it's, I mean, it's, I don't think, I don't believe it's intentional. Um, there's, there's probably some people out there. I know there are, cause I, I read these Twitter rants that people have. Um, and they, they claim it's like gatekeeping and, and I don't, I don't believe it's on purpose. Uh, yeah. like some people, assume it is um so the idea is like people are doing this to uh um as some kind of job security um i think it does that inadvertently though right and you know there's there's folks like yourself you're you're not you're you're full-time like on the front end of things like working in html and css most of the time and when people start taking stuff from your world and embedding it inside of HTML or, or sorry, inside of JavaScript, um, where arguably it doesn't belong, it impedes your job, like, and how performant you are. Right. Yeah, I just, I don't like it, man. It like, it bothers <laughs> me. It just, like, and I, I have the same problem with Vue. Like, Vue, you can, you write your CSS within your template. And I get it, like, you can throw a scope attribute on it. But why? Like, just write CSS, use a good architecture like BEM or Smacks or something like that, and just keep the stuff separated. Like, we can do this if we all work together. <laughs> yeah, I guess the reason I bring it up is uh, I keep seeing this in uh, the Blazor world of things now. Uh, so Blazor is not JavaScript, uh, but it's C Sharp. That's, that's essentially uh, equivalent to JSX. Right. Um, the nice thing about it is that I, I think if you looked at it, I, I don't know if you have, so you may have already looked at it, but if you've looked at it, um, you'd see it's very HTML friendly. It's not um, the, the templating system that uh, .NET uses called Razor, and it's very um, unobtrusive. It, it I know Razor. 
Yeah, it doesn't like it doesn't jump all over the HTML and make it where it's it doesn't look like HTML anymore. Right. At least in my opinion, in my experience, it hasn't. Um, but there's folks that are like, how do I embed the styles in the component and like how do I write them in C C sharp instead of CSS and all this these topics are coming up because the framework is new. And I just cringe. I'm like, no, please yeah. don't do this. Yeah, no, that's no, that's no bueno. Uh, I was like, please just, just don't go down that path. You know, let's speaking of CSS in C sharp, somebody came out to my last company and they were talking about Xamarin and some other stuff. I think they were from Microsoft and they were talking about how you can build mobile apps with Xamarin. And then when they were talking about it, like I didn't, I didn't see any front end technology in this, in, in like a Xamarin build and like, Oh, if you want to style it, you need to like write XSLT. Is that, is that what it is? XSLT is like a style language for Xamarin. Uh, so XSLT is a, uh, XML transformation language. And it is not something that, um, is one of my favorite <laughs> tools to use for anything. I just remember when they were talking about it, they were talking about styling it. Like they weren't using CSS. They were using some other type of thing. And I'm like, this puts all of the front end devs out of a job. If this is the way we're going at this company, because if all these .NET devs are going to be doing the Xamarin stuff, what are the front end devs going to do? So I don't know. It was just a question. Yeah. So you, you kind of have to break it down to mobile being a completely different beast than web. So with web, we've got, HTML, CSS, uh, and then some something to power the logic these days. It's mainly JavaScript, um, but we've got um, you know WebAssembly bringing some new languages into the fold. But generally, HTML, CSS is is what you're looking at. Right. Um, mobile, however, is it's two essentially two proprietary platforms. You've got Android and iOS. And they, they're not open like the web is. Um, and they, they use completely different systems for styling uh, their user interface. So if you want to color a button, let's say, um, that is a system level UI element. And you have to use the APIs to color that button. So what Xamarin does is it tries to make a common ground between these two systems. And you use XML to explain that you want a button on the, on the, uh, on the view. And it will then turn that XML code into the proper Android and iOS uh, method calls to make that button happen. Okay. So it's, it's not that they're trying to avoid CSS, it's there, there isn't a CSS language to use. Right. Uh, so they're, they're kind of created their own way of doing this through XML. So that XML then gets translated in native um, Android and iOS um, API calls. Yeah. Uh, now, if you look at native script, uh, that is using, that's, it's similar to Xamarin except it's built on web technologies. So it uses uh, HTML, CSS, and JavaScript 
to create native iOS and Android applications, but essentially does the same thing. Right. So use XML to describe the UI portion. Uh, um, I said HTML, but I, I meant XML. Uh, use CSS to create styles, but there's a caveat. See, it's still having to do that translation. So you use CSS to describe it, but there, it still has to have something it can correlate to. Okay. So there's things that aren't going to work. So mainly you can color things, you can color a button, but you can't, you know, you may be able to change the width of the button, but there's no way to like change it from a float to a absolute position. You know what I mean? There's no, there's no HTML world that that thing belongs in. Uh, so there's many styles that just don't apply. Makes sense. Um, so, so that's where those things come from. Now we've got uh, the Blazor framework is starting to expand into the Xamarin world. And it'll be interesting to see if there's a CSS model that gets adopted and lets it style these forms with uh, CSS instead of the XSLT stuff. Um, but, you know, that's, that's kind of bleeding edge and right. out there ways. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's kind of the way that, that stuff unfolded. <laughs> right on. Um, you know, from a web developer's perspective, I wish there was more of the CSS stuff to go around, but the folks that are in the Xamarin world are pretty happy yeah. with the way that works. And uh, that's because their, their language that they use to describe the uh, colors and all these things, the visual elements, that also works on native Windows. So, um, you know, it's uh, UWP, uh, Universal Windows Platform. Um, and uh, WPF Windows it's Windows Presentation Foundation something like that I, somebody's going to correct me on that I'm sure uh, but the two flavors of Windows desktop development use the same language cool awesome yep oh man so I've got some resources that we talked about I will hit you up for those after the show I've got um an article that you said you, you wrote about uh, colors and how to test those things. Yep. And you talked about AxCore a bit. Um, other than that, um, do you have any like conferences or podcasts that you do, things like that, that uh, we can talk about? Yeah, so uh, I do host a podcast. It's called Tales from the Script. It's a front-end focus podcast mixed with a little bit of horror. Um, Great name, by the way. Yeah, I love it. It's, uh, we just resurrected it. Well, we, I just resurrected it this year. Uh, started to record episodes a couple weeks ago. I had one drop last week, dropping one today with my guest, Gant Laborde. So give that a listen, Spotify, podcast apps, uh, Stitcher. And then I will be at a few different events this year. I'll be at Connectaha in Omaha, Orlando Code Camp, NGConf, UI Architecture Conference, and Mini Accessibility Conf in New Orleans, Magnolia JS in Mississippi, Codestock in Knoxville refactor in atlanta and you gotta love front end in lithuania so far very nice yes sir got uh quite the um jet set uh schedule coming oh these next few months are going to be busy 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 <laughs> uh man i appreciate having you on the show thanks for uh, having me brother and good talking about uh the accessibility stuff it's a topic that i really really enjoy talking about i don't think it gets addressed quite enough unfortunately yeah but we're here so, to change that Yes, definitely. 
Uh, so uh, make sure you all follow uh, Chris Mars online on uh, on the social medias, and uh, we'll, we'll put some uh, links in the show notes to your podcast. Some of the stuff I mentioned. Sounds good. Yeah.